0: Welcome to Faith and Freedom Fighters. I'm Robert Muse, co-founder and senior counsel of the American Freedom Law Center. And I'm joined once again by my fellow freedom fighter, co-founder and senior counsel, David Urshami. David, I'd say, hold on to your seats. I think we have a show today that our listeners and viewers do not wanna miss. We'll be discussing how the left stole this last election and how they plan to continue stealing elections in the future unless we have the courage to stop them. You know, as you have uh, carefully and properly noted in prior podcasts, we are currently in a non-kinetic civil war. So how far will the left go and how far will the right let it? These are slowly becoming, I think, quite dangerous times. Indeed, unless we can recapture some integrity with our elections, particularly at the national level, level, you know, I fear where all of this is headed. Because fair and honest elections, they're the lifeblood of our constitutional republic. Its survival depends upon it. Accordingly, the American people demand and deserve honest, fair and transparent elections. They demand and deserve a process that ensures that their legal votes will count and that illegal votes will not. Indeed our constitution demands it. Again, I wanna welcome David to what will certainly be an informative, provocative and no doubt controversial show. And I'll make this one point. This election theft began well before election day this past November. Welcome David.
1: Hi, Rob, thank you very much. And it's a very good intro. The fact is, is that I certainly come out on the side that the progressives and really initiated in, in specific form under the Obama administration have stolen uh, not only this past election, but essentially attempted a coup d'etat Uh, of the Trump administration, and we'll get into that. But as we have uh, kind of established as our working model, we always take a moment of each podcast to kind of reflect back just briefly on the prior podcast so that there's continuity. And I want to address briefly the issue of the last podcast, which in addition to your very excellent kind of constitutional 101, a good reference point for our listeners, if they want to understand the basics of constitutional law and constitutional litigation, the point we made about vaccinations and the point we made the week earlier about vaccinations. To begin, to remind our listeners, we are not anti-vaxxers. I personally get a influenza vaccine every year at 64 years of age. Uh, I got the shingles vaccination, which us old folks get. Um, I've had all my childhood vaccinations. My children had all their childhood vaccinations. Um, Point one. Point two, medical doctors, MDs, your treating physician are not scientists and they're not researchers. They weren't a skill. Medicine. And even more particularly, they learn a species of medicine, whatever their specialty is. And even if they're general practitioners, uh, they're essentially learning the subspecialty of general practitioner, effectively kind of an internist or an internal medicine person. Um, They do not know how to look at scientific studies. They do not know how to assess Scientific studies, unless for some reason they've gone off and um, gotten a degree or studied specifically this area of um, science, research protocols, experimentation, etc. And I dare say I doubt that many, if not 99.9%, of them are not sufficiently schooled in statistical analysis to know whether the studies are even analyzed properly by the statistics that are applied. We've indicated that the big threat from these new RNA and DNA developed vaccines, which are a new form of vaccine that don't use the dead or inactive virus to allow your body to create its own immunological response. Rather, it sends a message at the RNA level or the DNA level to your cells to attack certain aspects of the vaccine. It's a messengering process. That has not been studied for any real length of time. We do not know for these vaccines or even the earlier, for example, the rabies vaccine that they developed through RNA messenger um, process, the medium to long-term effects that these vaccines have on human beings we don't know and as you all know the vaccines currently in use and especially the ones in the united states have only received emergency authorization use they haven't been through the full fda approval process we don't know how they affect pregnant women which is why under the label pregnant women should not get the vaccine. We don't know how they affect the mother who's um, suckling her child, i.e. what happens to the child who's feeding from the mother. We don't know. And so that's contraindicated on the label. We don't know the effects on individuals who have immunosuppressant issues, inability to respond to immunological threats. We don't know. There's a lot of things we don't know about the current impact of the vaccine. In addition to these, we don't know if it's going to be effective against the various variants. We don't know how often we're going to have to take the vaccine because we don't know how long the immunological response from these vaccines are going to be because we haven't studied them that long. Now, the problem with an individual trying to decide, do I take the vaccine? And we've discussed this is the risk benefit analysis. So if you're 80 years old and you have comorbidity issues, meaning you're susceptible to the disease, COVID, and you're susceptible to death or a very bad outcome, then you're not going to be too concerned about the long-term 10, 20-year effects. If you're younger, my age, 50 years old, 30 years old, 20 years old, you will be very concerned. And by the way, we don't know the effect of these vaccines on young children, which is why they also are not recommended to have the vaccine. But in science, and especially in medicine, there is the problem of not only what we don't know, but what becomes the articulated problem from what we don't know, and that is unintended consequences. That is to say, we have a history of medicines that the FDA has approved not through some emergency authorization use, but through the full panoply of research, analysis and testing that they determined were effective medicines for a indicated use that later turned out months, years later to be deadly and had to have been recalled A couple of these medicines come to mind, but there's a list of them. One is of course, Accutane, the medicine that's used for acne. It turned out that while it was very effective in treating very, very acute acne, later they determined that it caused suicidal ideations and actual depression and suicides followed in large numbers and that it caused gastrointestinal issues to the point where Accutane was effectively withdrawn. There's now generic um, uh, versions out there, but with massive warnings. Also, they found out that Accutane caused birth defects. And this was a process after it was approved that they learned just how deadly and problematic it was for pregnant women and their fetuses. Another classic case was Vioxx. Viox was de- developed by Merck, one of the largest pharmaceutical companies in the world and certainly in America, ha- based in New Jersey. They developed Vioxx as a non-steroidal um, pain reliever in the same way that, that Ibuprofen and, and um, these kinds of medicines um, are um, non-steroidal pain relievers that essentially um, work as anti-inflammatories um, and pain relievers as a result. Vioxx was developed in 1999 and it was expensive, but it was thought by Merck to be worthwhile for um, arthritis um, uh, and other forms of chronic longstanding pain because they believed that Vioxx did not adversely affect the GI system, the gastrointestinal system, your stomach. Whereas other ibuprofens used over long periods of time to deal with chronic pain, created all sorts of havoc on the gastrointestinal system, which required additional medicines. This Vioxx was supposed to be the answer to that. Well, as after it was approved through a full testing process and analytical process by the FDA, in an effort to prove that it was going to be much safer on the GI system, Merck began a study called the Vigor, V-I-G-O-R study. Well, during the course of this Vigor study, people started showing up with heart failure and heart issues. Ultimately, what happened? Merck covered up the heart issues in very sophisticated ways, and this has been documented. And But it got so bad that ultimately, Merck itself recalled the drug because the FDA doesn't actually do the recalling. It can change the label or the indicated use or what have you. The drug companies themselves do the recalling of the drug. Merck recalled the drug by 2004, 2005. In other words, it had been on the market for at least five years before the deleterious effects, the unintended consequences showed up. What's more is that Merck took the position in litigation and there were numerous lawsuits, took seeking billions of dollars in recovery. Ultimately Merck settled the class action lawsuit for four billion plus dollars. This wasn't just some claim, there were real harms. Merck took the position in litigation and still takes the position today as I understand it, that the heart conditions weren't even evident until someone had taken the medication for 18 months. Now imagine that we're told by Pfizer or Johnson & Johnson or the other vaccine manufacturers that 18 months, two years from now, five years from now, we find that individuals who received this vaccine and were properly immunized from COVID-19 develop some other much more deadly or problematic outcome. And they'll tell us, well, we didn't know about it. Well, of course, they didn't know about it because they don't know about it today. When you met, and I, we're not saying, and God forbid there should be bad outcomes. I'm praying every day that there won't be because friends and family of mine have been vaccinated. But before you take the vaccine, don't listen to your doctor who says, when asked, what's the best vaccine for me? Well, whatever vaccine's available, that's what they're. Their tagline is, and they receive that from the federal government, whatever vaccine is available is the best vaccine for you. False. Make the assessment yourself based upon what you understand your risks are and what the benefits are. But understand, we do not know the medium to long-term effects of these vaccines. (laughs) Yeah, the vaccine.
0: Recap, <laughs> yeah, we'll, yeah, we'll be transitioning to hopefully the uh, the election stuff here shortly. But you know, a couple a couple of just uh, minor points. You know, there's um, obviously a lot of pressure being put on people to get the vaccine, right? There's a lot of public pressure. There's there may very well be political pressure in, in terms of um, you know requirements before you can do certain things to have proof of vaccination. But you know, you you'd mentioned about the. Uh, the impact, potential impact on women who are pregnant. I just saw just the other day, it was one of the health departments. I don't know if it was from at the federal level, or the state level, they were, you know, pressing that everybody get their vaccine. And they showed a woman there who was plainly pregnant, you know, rubbing her belly with the baby that as if to say, look, you know, I got the vaccine is perfectly safe for me. So there's, there's a lot of propaganda out there on this, uh, on the vaccine. And it's, as you said, look, we gotta be, uh, we gotta be very, uh, be very careful. And it's something that you have to assess based on the based on the on the risk factors. But um, they just they just don't know. I mean, that's the reality is they don't know what the long term effects. Quite frankly, they don't even know what the short term effects are, as you had mentioned in prior podcasts, how long the immunity would even last. Um, so uh, something to consider for the vaccine. So let's transition now to the uh, to the election. You know, I, I mentioned at the end of my sort of uh, opening monologue, as it were. Um, that you know the left has been has been trying to uh, steal elections for a long time, not just for this November third. And, and I know you had some uh, thoughts on that from you know from the, the the laws that they constantly challenge, as well as you know this RussiaGate. Um, help us out here. Well, look, um, here's what
1: we know, and it's it's interesting. Uh, we're not going to get into the detail. People can can um, Google and drill down on voter. Um, law history, and they have various timelines for it. Um, We'll talk about it at a very high altitude, but the key word used by progressives to literally change the entire landscape of how elections are currently being done and will be done in the future is called voter suppression. Whenever you hear that term, it's like social justice. It's like social equity. It means taking what we have built in this country and have modified over time for good and for bad, but turning it on its head and radically shifting the perspective from a constitutional republic to effectively a government laden tyranny, and I, we don't say that lightly, but if you look back, if you look back and you, you look back at the beginning of the country, remember that at the time that the country was founded, the idea that um, people had the right to vote for their representative government wasn't a universal right. The concept of one man, one vote didn't come along until years later with the Warren Court. um, And that's mid 20th century. Um, Initially, only white men and typically property owners um, had the right to vote. That has been modified over time. And keep in mind that the states effectively determine what the rights and who got to vote in their state. Over time, this has been expanded and it was expanded relatively organically because as individuals, either poor individuals, white males who didn't own property, as um, the American Indians, the freed slaves, even while there was still slavery, and ultimately after the Civil War, um, the African-Americans in this country were ultimately given the right to vote, but we saw the state still impose restrictions on them various ways, and um, the so-called Dred Scott cases, the Jim Crow laws, um, all talk to that issue. Over time, these various impediments against voting have been modified and changed. The one area that I think is worth discussing before kind of moving on, Rob, is the idea that if you look at how this country was founded and who got to vote from a perspective of the 21st century today, you can say, oh, the country was a bunch of white male bigots, right? Rich white male bigots. But that would be false because keep in mind that what the world understands as good or moral today is not what they understood before. Now, if you're a classic liberal, then that shouldn't bother you. The reality is is that if there is no transcendent truth, there is no revelation, there is no Judeo-Christian moral foundation to this country, then everything simply becomes a social convention, a social construct. It's whatever you think it is at the time. At the time of the founding, not just this country, but the entire world understood the right to elect your own government in very narrow terms. Keep in mind that most of the world, Africa, Europe, the Slavic countries, the South American countries, none of these countries believe that individuals should have the right to vote at all. These were typically tribal societies, um, uh, monocular societies, tyrannies, military controlled entities. The United States and the West were the ones who developed the idea that individuals had the power and they're the ones who voted and created a government of the people, by the people and for the people. That process led to the voting that we have today, and the idea that there's voter suppression today, I think, is nonsensical given the fact that everyone has the right to vote and no one is restricted.
0: Right. You, you know the. Um, uh, you know we, we mentioned in the last pod in the last podcast or previous podcasts that. You know, we don't have a pure democracy, right? We have a constitutional republic, right? Not every, not every piece of legislation that gets passed, uh, you know, through the through the Congress is voted on by private citizens. No, we represent, we elect representatives who then stand in our shoes, right? And, and we had mentioned before that when the when our Constitution was uh, was founded, the Senate wasn't even popularly elected; they were appointed by the legislatures. Um, and, you know, that changed over time with, the, uh, with the, the constitutional amendment. So there isn't this, the idea, though, that we have this, you know, this pure democracy is just not true. We have a constitutional republic. But so I want to I get into this, um, you know, when we dive into this election, the November, November 3rd, the 2020 general election, you know, I wanted, there's... Um, and, and perhaps you know we, and I know the listeners and viewers have have heard these before, but you know there's some, some real statistical anomalies that occurred during this past election. And now there are kind of five that I, when I've gone going through and looking at them, that I want to just highlight and run through them, uh, because, and and you know at the end of the day, the, you know the, the statistics, I mean, they don't prove fraud, right? They they just they just don't. You can't prove fraud with these statistics. That's not how this all works. But when you look at these anomalies. You know, there's something something really strange happened uh, in this past November. And here's the first one. If you look at the total numbers of votes received and this is this is comparing Obama in the historic 2008 election and in this past election with uh, with Trump and Biden in 2008, Barack Obama received 69 million votes, roughly, give or take, you know, a thousand here or there. Uh, And again, this was a historic election. This past election, Trump had 74 Million votes. Biden had 81 million votes. Biden got more votes. This really unvetted stealth candidate who wouldn't leave his basement to campaign. And and quite frankly, the worst candidate in my lifetime, and that includes Jimmy Carter, as you know, one of the uh one of the presidents during that time, he outperformed the historic election with Barack Obama. I'm just sorry, that just that just doesn't pass the smell test. Second, the number of counties each candidate won. Now, understand, you know, counties, obviously the counties that the left usually wins are the, you know, the big counties. They're very populous, there's no doubt. But just look at these numbers. Obama in 2008 won 873 counties. This last election, Trump won 2,547 counties. Biden won 509. So you have Obama 873 counties and Biden 509. Third the fraction of what they call bellwether counties, right? These are, these are counties that uh, there's from 1980 through 2016. This is what the, you know, the the political election pundits who look at these things, there are apparently 19 counties that have consistently voted for the eventual president. And that includes the 10 elections, including Obama, 2008 and Trump in 2016, Obama in 2018 won 18 of 19 of those bellwether counties. Trump, in this last election, won 18 of 19 of those bellwether counties. So guess how many Biden won? He won just one of those 19 bellwether counties. Again, these, these, these anomalies, it's crazy. Fourth, you look at whether they won Florida, Ohio, and Iowa. Like those tend to be key uh, battleground states. Obama won them, Trump won them, and Biden lost them in this last election. The last time that happened was in 1960 when President John F. Kennedy lost all three states and still won the White House, beating out the uh, future President Richard Nixon. And fifth, the final one is whether each candidate's political party won seats in the House of Representatives. That occurred with Obama, it occurred with Trump, it didn't occur with, uh, with Biden. You know, and, and it's, it struck me when you look at these, really these statistical anomalies, anomalies you know, how the left will cry systemic racism, you know, with no statistics to support the claim. In fact, the statistics prove the opposite. Uh, and we'll, we'll be discussing that, I'm sure, in another podcast. Yet when you have statistics that show that there's a strong likelihood of something went amiss, such as the anomalies with this last election, you know, they totally get explained away. And again, these statistics don't prove fraud or they don't prove malfeasance per se, but they are certainly, you know, plumes of smoke that should have us looking to see if there's something burning there, it just—it's really—it's just remarkable when you look at uh, what this with uh, this last election, particularly again with Biden, who's a candidate who didn't even who didn't campaign, right? He was, he was on this, um, you know, I, this like the witness protection program. He was on the candidate protection program uh, by the media. So, your thoughts? Well, and you and
1: I have talked about this at some length uh, offline, as it were, and that is, look, we know why these statistics appear to be, um, as it were, problematic. And that is because this election was different from every prior election in that people were allowed to vote at the and register and vote at the same time at the last minute. People were allowed to vote through absentee ballots, drop off ballots. Um, people were allowed to harvest ballots and it varied from state to state. But what that meant was you had record numbers of people, quote unquote, voting. Now there's a reason why we want people to vote in the booth in person, because we want people to take voting seriously. We want people to be committed. We don't want people to vote like they take a survey when someone from CNN's pollster calls you and you just you know sound off about something it is a very very important if not the most important task in a democracy and especially in a constitutional republic where the opportunity to vote has enormous impact beyond simply what you're voting for because we don't do governance by plebiscite We vote for officials, elected officials, to represent us the best they can. So that decision has got to be an important and sound one. Now, what you had in this election was the mass collection of voting done outside the booth. And we know as a matter of law, for example, that many of these ballots, the presumption is that the signatures on the bottom were legal and valid. Oftentimes states would run millions and millions of votes through a software program. Now you don't know what the algorithms on that software program to determine if they match the signatures on file. Some states didn't even do that. And the only way you even know that the signatures don't match is they're challenged. And even if they are, after they're, even if they're um, analyzed by a software program, and then the software program flags a small percentage of the millions of votes, election workers who have no real skill at looking and matching signatures uh, attempt to do so. That is why we want people to go to a booth, and that is why we want voter ID. But that is why the progressives argue that forcing people to go to a booth. And forcing people to have a voter ID the same way you would cash a check or write a check or do anything else in this country. How about drive a car? (laughs) Right. Is voter suppression. It's voter suppression. If you want to get on a plane, you have to show a valid ID and a special kind of valid ID now. But for them, any kind of effort. They link back to the old days of literacy tests and only white male property owners and poll taxes and 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 uh, you know uh, all the other restrictions that occurred in the old days. And they say it's voter suppression, it's racism. And why? Because they want to be able to collect the millions of votes of people who don't really think or care about what they're doing. They're just being. Collected Now, beyond that, and this is the point that um, Rob and I have been making, and again, we don't know of specific instances of fraud. I mean, in our litigation, we had some pretty good instances, uh, affidavits, declarations by actual election workers of bad acts that could have amounted to fraud um, and certainly appeared to be illegal acts. But the reality is, and this is why the various litigated cases after the election didn't amount to much because given the structure of the legal system, if you couldn't establish one standing and two actual fraud where your vote didn't count, you didn't get very far. This election, in addition to the red flags, the smoke that we see with all of these votes, was actually stolen five years earlier at the time of the Obama administration. And the first indication, and let me just, before I get into the weeds here, what we're talking about is President Obama and key people in his administration with Hillary Clinton and her campaign literally conspiring to accuse Donald Trump as a candidate of being subject to Russian blackmail and therefore colluding with Russia to steal the election from Hillary Clinton. This occurred back in July. And then the Obama administration continuing that with the so-called hurricane crossfire or whatever it was called investigation in which they throughout the Trump administration and the Robert Mueller investigation kept the drumbeat of the narrative that Donald Trump and his administration key people were colluding with the Russian government. Keep in mind that the entire narrative by progressives that Trump colluded with Russia to steal the election was based upon a few Russian trolls who put out social media messaging to try to distort the election. Now that did in fact occur. Most of that was protected kind of free speech. Some of it was illegal because they used bad eye, stolen identities or false identities. Uh, They hacked emails and so forth. But the whole claim was that Russia was able to get involved in our own wild freewheeling social discourse about elections and somehow change the way people were going to vote. Think about that. What did the Obama administration do in July of 2016? Remember the election was in the fall of 2016. In the summer of 2016, Hillary Clinton was being investigated for the fact that she had used her private email server of the Clinton Foundation to engage in top secret discussions. In fact, all of her, much of her secretary of state discussions, but included private, confidential, and even top secret communications all in violation of the law. She knew she was in violation of the law to the point where when it became public, they attempted and did in fact effectively scrub, they deleted and then deleted again and deleted again until they had scrubbed the evidence of this. Now, some of it came up indirectly, but Hillary Clinton had committed several federal crimes, serious federal crimes. The Obama administration, which desperately wanted Hillary Clinton to win, and certainly didn't want Donald Trump to win, had a problem. How do we protect Hillary and, and, and her can candidacy? Well, Hillary had an idea, and she and her team commissioned the so-called Steele dossier, which made up all of the allegations of Russian collusion, every bit of it was made up. Initially, and certainly ultimately, during this time frame, the FBI and the Obama administration knew that it was Hillary Clinton's doing. And we know that because there was a meeting in July, sometime after July of 2016, in which the head of the CIA, Brennan, informed at a meeting, James Comey, President Obama, Dennis McDonnell, the chief of staff, remember James Comey was the director of the FBI, Susan Rice, who was President Obama's national security advisor, that the Russians knew that Hillary had commissioned the Steele dossier. In other words, they knew that Hillary had commissioned it. It was all part of the plan to blame Donald Trump or accuse Donald Trump of colluding with the Russians to, as it were, divert attention away from Hillary Clinton's crime. After that meeting, the Obama administration was fully informed that even the Russians knew of the game, which created a problem. Comey, as the head of the FBI, was investigating Clinton. So what does he do? As we all know, he's confronted with the fact that he knows Hillary Clinton committed a federal crime, and there's no way around it. What did he do? He comes on TV, and he announces the result of his investigation, which is not to prosecute her. He does that because he knows a decision not to prosecute Hillary Clinton for these obvious crimes is going to raise a firestorm. If not a revolt within the FBI, certainly externally, people are going to know what he's done. He's washed it under the rug. Normally, the FBI doesn't announce publicly the end of an investigation and its reasoning. They just end it. If they're going to indict, they indict. It becomes public. But if they end it, they don't announce it. And they certainly don't give the rationale. Comey breaks with tradition and provides the full rationale, which he attempts to make because he's a good lawyer, but he makes it very poorly. And everyone who's looked at his analysis knows that it's fraudulent. He was trying to save Hillary Clinton, but he had to do something to appear credible. So he makes this... Big announcement, hoping that's going to somehow resolve the problem. It doesn't. Now Hillary Clinton actually blames him. She wanted him just to swallow everything and hide it under the rug. This now becomes the investigation, the hurricane crossfire investigation, which is both a federal criminal and counter espionage investigation, it's called. What happens next? The next major event, and I'm sure there were lots of other meetings, is a meeting on January 5, 2017. After Trump is elected, while he's still the president-elect, Obama wants to make certain that the investigation that they began to blame Trump to keep him out of office, since that didn't work, now they had to essentially plan a coup d'etat. How do they ruin the Trump administration? Well, at that meeting at which there were top national security advisors, but in addition, Susan Rice again, the president himself, Vice President Biden, now of course, President Biden, the Sally Yates, the deputy Attorney General and effectively acting Attorney General. And she does, in fact, soon thereafter become the acting Attorney General. This is the famous Sally Yates, who during the Clinton administration, you know, the Clinton investigation, Hillary Clinton investigation and the emails, meets with President Clinton on the tarmac in his plane. And then all of a sudden, Comey announces no prosecution. And FBI Director James Comey, all at this meeting in January. After they end the meeting, Susan Rice writes a classic attorney CYA memo, a memo which is meant to be a contemporaneous writing, meaning it's fresh and the memories are all good, but it is so clearly a cover your backside. And she essentially writes, well, President Obama wants this done according to the book. That was the famous line. But in reality, what this does is shows us that as Obama and his key team are on the way out, the main point of that meeting is, how do we keep Trump out of the link? How do we keep him from knowing as soon to be president and president that we're actually investigating him? Comey wasn't quite sure, but he was the man tasked with being disingenuous and dishonest with President-elect Trump and President Trump by telling him You're not under investigation when in fact he was. They knew from July of 2016 that the whole Russian collusion game was fraudulent. The entire investigation had no proper predicate and was fraudulent. And they met again in January to be certain that it would continue and disrupt his presidency. So when we say that the 2020 election was stolen, We don't mean by election fraud. It could have been that, but we don't have any hard evidence of that. What we do have hard evidence of, demonstrable evidence of, is that President Obama and his team planned the entire Russiagate. And that narrative, that drumbeat, not just by the Democrats, but by the Democrat media complex, the whole progressive movement, over and over and over again, while it didn't change the minds of the true Trump supporters, it would certainly have an effect on moderate wishy-washy voters. And of course, the MSNBC viewers and the hard left, they already knew in their minds that Trump was a criminal, et cetera, et cetera. That's how you steal an election. And that is illegal, because one, they engaged in falsifying a criminal investigation, one of their little uh, cohorts actually falsified documents given to the FISA court, as we know, pled guilty, was convicted. We know that that they obstructed justice by allowing Robert Mueller and that entire investigation run by his senior people who were all hardcore progressives involved in this that in addition was criminal obstruction these people committed one crime
0: after another to steal the election yeah and and what's the result of that right practically nothing you had you had that one you mentioned the one uh, one conviction which was was really minor at the end of the day i and whether we're going to see anything further from this i don't know i doubt it one uh, one factual correction it wasn't uh, sally yates who met on the tarmac it was loretta lynch if we recall who was obama's um attorney general but huh. the rest of that was is all true so i mean the point being that this you know this influence on the elections you had the media that was going along with them right and, and i kind of you know i don't want to laugh laughs not the right right term but you look at how you know they they go after trump where he he pays a settlement in a lawsuit, a nuisance lawsuit, includes as part of the lawsuit a, uh, a non-disclosure agreement, right, that Stormy Daniels deal. And that's being considered an unlawful co- campaign contribution. I mean, it's just, when you, if you could add up the billions and billions of dollars of, of uh, false media that uh, was given to the Democratic Party, uh, for this this last uh, election cycle, my goodness, it would be uh, you know if that's what we're going to start looking at as campaign contributions. But the point being, this you know this they they grease these this these wheels early early on, right? And we, we and the, the point about our elections, we have to have a, a measure of integrity in our election. There has to be a way to to ensure that these that there aren't false you know votes being uh, illegal votes that are being cast. And I know we, you know we talk about all the time evidence of fraud, evidence of fraud and everything. Well, you know, fraud obviously has a certain connotation and it's a certain you know, criminal level, but I can tell you we had evidence, right? We filed a petition, I'm gonna get into this later, and uh, the Michigan Supreme Court, we sought a, a, a um, extraordinary writ, a, um, a, we petitioned for an extraordinary writ, very hard to do, um, but given the nature of campaign elections, uh, where everything is very truncated and you have to go pretty quickly, um, you know, that's what we thought was the best, uh, the best shot. We included in there 40-some-odd exhibits, 30-plus of them were affidavits from eyewitnesses who witness, you know, post-dating of ballots and changing names, the failure to verify the signatures. All those things are against the law. They're election malfeasance to the rise to the level of fraud. I mean, I don't know. I mean, that's usually, a, you know, a, a, whether it's election, criminal election fraud, we always told that term. Oh, there's no fraud. There's no evidence. For fraud." There was absolute evidence of of illicit activity that allowed illegal votes to be counted. Does that count as fraud? I don't know. I mean, I, I haven't done a, a a a prosecution for campaign fraud. But I can tell you that when you when you find that those procedures are illicit, then there's a problem. And. You know, one of the things we're going to discuss later is HR1, right? HR1 was passed uh, recently by by the House. Um, it hasn't come up for vote yet in the Senate. Uh, hopefully, I've been watching the the news and looking at news reports, and um, most people seem to think it's going to be it's going to get killed in the Senate with the uh, with the filibuster. Um, but if it doesn't, uh, that's that spells some some bad news. and, and HR1. As I said, we'll discuss a little bit later. To me, if you want exhibit one to show that this last election was stolen, it's HR1. Because what does HR1 do? It makes legal, as a matter of federal law, much of the tactics they're employed by the Democrats during this last election, which were illegal as a matter of state law. So HR1, if this thing passes through the Senate and and, and Biden said he'll sign it, it's going to ensure that we no longer have election integrity or processes in place to ensure election integrity.
1: Well, you know, this, Rob, let me just say, this goes to the point that when government, and especially the left, but it's true of any government, when government gets a power, they never rescind the power. They never redact the power. It only grows. So keep in mind that even those COVID-based election laws that were mandated as a result of COVID, right? The whole harvesting of ballots, the increased in absentee ballots, the drop-off, just throw it into a box next to the library, which I did um, uh, here in, in LA for my wife when she voted. The fact is, is that they instituted these rather extreme and radical changes to the idea that you go into the booth you make arrangements at work, you, you, you show it's important, you go into the booth and you vote in person. On the basis, it's COVID, social distancing. We have to institute these. Well, guess what? And this is, I, I, I'm looking forward to you getting into HR1 on this. HR1 now memorializes, concretizes these emergency procedures forever. And they do so on steroids right they don't just take what yeah. they did they they take every one of those things and and exaggerate the the opportunity for fraud and corruption in the election process
0: right you know it's you mentioned once once they they have this power you never get rid of it i always liken it to you know they they build a new bridge and so they put a toll booth at the edge of the bridge and the toll booth is only going to stay there allegedly Until the bridge is paid for. Well, the toll booth never goes away. They continue to collect, collect, collect because it's putting money in the coffers. You know, one of the things, and this is going to get, going to dovetail into HR1, into this last election, the the points you made about the uh, the COVID. We know, and I want to, you know, begin with this really, this indisputable proposition. Mail-in and absentee ballot schemes are exceedingly susceptible to fraud. It's been our nation's experience for decades. The left knows that as well. You know, in 2005, there is a commission on federal election reform, which was a bipartisan bipartisan commission. It was chaired by former President Jimmy Carter and former Secretary of State James Baker, which is cited quite extensively, quite frequently by the U.S. Supreme Court. And they made this um, its obvious observation that the electoral system cannot inspire public confidence if no safeguards exist to deter, to deter or detect fraud. to confirm the identity of voters right and and according to the uh you know to this report mail-in voting is the largest source of potential voter fraud i mean it makes absolute sense and and many well-regarded commissions and groups of diverse political affiliation agree that when election fraud occurs it usually arises from absentee ballots or mail-in ballots why because such fraud is easier to commit and far harder to detect and this is, you know, a federal court made this point uh, in 2004. And they said absentee voting is to voting in person as a take home exam is to a proctored one, right? So that's that's, that's kind of where we are. And, and courts have repeatedly found that mail in ballots are particularly susceptible to fraud. You can now, look at me. You know, let me
1: just jump in for a second. Yes. Just, just to note, Rob's point about absentee ballots being susceptible to fraud is so patent and obvious people might not realize it wasn't until 1986 and the Uniformed and Overseas Citizens Absentee Voting Act came around, 1986, that we allowed our soldiers stationed overseas to vote through absentee ballots. Now, that's how long it took. And the reason was, and the reason why it's been limited thereafter to very, very specific circumstances is precisely the problem
0: Rob's speaking about now. Right. And there's, and you can look, I mean, because we looked at these cases when we were, um, you know, doing our election litigation, I mean, case after case after case makes the point that mail-in balloting and absentee uh, ballots use is, I mean, they, there's so many opportunities for fraud. And again, the problem is it's very hard to detect. And one thing, just another kind of interesting anomaly with election litigation, as it were, when um, you know the election was november 3rd there's in a matter of federal law they put in this provision called the safe harbor provision and it's it's measured by how many you know how many days it is after election of when the safe harbor triggers this past election it was december 8th so we had to you had to have every every challenge to the election every litigation challenge to the election had to be done by december 8th it had to be concluded by december it's just not possible to, to marshal that kind of evidence. I mean, you know, when we do the, these you know, these cases, they often take a couple of years worth of discovery to get into all the details and all the facts. But even so, the, and so many of these cases, including ours, we had actual sworn affidavits by individuals who were witnesses to election malfeasance. There was evidence, and that's, that's considered evidence. When somebody files a, a, a sworn affidavit that they witnessed... Uh, either, you know, tampering with the ballots, changing the, the, the dates on the ballots, um, not verifying signatures, modifying the, you know, the, the registrations online. And th- those things are all, when you have people who are willing to swear under oath that those things happened, that's evidence of election, whether you want to call it fraud or malfeasance but it's evidence that the election was stolen. And there was, a, there's a lot of that evidence out there. And it's so difficult to marshal all that. And you put the courts in kind of a tough position too, because they don't have a very short time. And, you know, which judge is going to have the guts to be the one to overturn a, uh, you know, a, a, an election, a national election at that level. So there's, there's some built in different built in, you know, problems to the election litigation, just but some of the cases,
1: our, I'm sorry, go ahead, just please. as a footnote for our audience, uh, and you were spearheading the Michigan um, litigation at the Michigan Supreme Court. We only lost that by a party vote. Yeah, right? it was four-three, a four-three vote. Democrats, Republicans. So clearly, yeah. um, ideology on both sides right. plays a part. And it wasn't seven-zero. It wasn't like we didn't have the evidence.
0: Yeah. Right. And and you know to say that these you know these uh, this litigation was frivolous. I mean, it's just absurd. I mean, these are, and the judges wrote, they wrote lengthy dissents as to why they denied the, uh, the petition for extraordinary, for an extraordinary writ, and they, you know, well-reasoned uh, dissents. And, you know, and, and I, I found it disheartening that the, you know, the U.S. Supreme Court didn't take up the election cases uh, recently, and, and Justice Thomas, and I was going to get to this in a, in a little bit, you know, wrote a, a terrific dissent. Um, and in terms of, you know, why it was wrong for the court to, um, you know, to punt and not take up the Pennsylvania case. I think the other one was the Wisconsin case. And he was joined in his, he was joined by uh, Justice Alito and Gorsuch. I was very disappointed that, uh, you know, Amy Coney Barrett, who is my classmate in Notre Dame, didn't, didn't at least agree to take it up. If you have, there's a rule of four, right? If you have four justices that are willing to take the case up, the cert will get granted and, and there'll be full, you know, full briefing on, on this. But these issues have to be resolved they just they do because this is going to come up again in in other election cycles right in pennsylvania for example that was a situation where the pennsylvania supreme court changed what the legislature had for when absentee ballots could be brought in and counted and that right. was and wrong to
1: and to that and point the supreme court actually saw these cases well before the election and our our Um, brother-in-arms, our colleague, uh, member of our advisory committee, uh, Andy McCarthy, who writes for National View, and uh, a fellow that we have enormous respect for, but we disagree on on the issues arising from the January 6th um, uh, event. Um, But he wrote back then, um, when much prior, months before the election, that the Supreme Court should take up those cases then so they're not flooded with these cases after the election when there's no real time to examine and decide them. But the Supreme Court under Chief Justice Roberts punted. They couldn't get enough justices to hear any of those cases. And Andrew McCarthy, to his credit, lamented that and said the Supreme Court will rue the day. Well, they don't rue the day, certainly not the progressives on the bench, including Chief Justice Roberts, because they believe the outcome was correct and they don't care how those of us on the other side of the political spectrum feel. And, and they don't much care that we're in a kinetic civil war. All they're going to do is make certain that they continue to win uh, excuse me a non-kinetic civil war that is to say a non-violent civil war they're going to continue to make sure that they um, win that non-kinetic civil war and then work also t- to um, take away our right to bear arms to make certain it doesn't become a kinetic civil war
0: as i said these are these are dangerous times you know the and because i want to keep hammering on this absentee and mill and voting issue. And, and again, this is you look at that commission that I cited back in 2005, and there's been plenty, plenty of cases that just re-emphasize that point the, that the risk of abuse by absentee mail votings voting is, is you know, through the roof. And it's magnified by the fact that many states, their voter registration databases are outdated or inaccurate. There's a 2012 study from the Pew Center on the states. And this, is a, uh, this was a study that the Supreme Court has cited in its cases too found that approximately 24, this was in 2012, it's, it's going to likely be far worse even today, that approximately 24 million, one out of every eight voter registration in the U.S. is no longer valid or accurate. I mean, you can think about that, one in eight, right? And then more than 1.8 million deceased individuals were listed as voters, and 2.75 million people have registrations in more than one state. And we'll see when you get to H.R. 1, this fact that you don't even know who's on your voter rolls and I think I saw a story recently that Michigan just cleaned off 177,000 people from their voter rolls. By the way, Trump lost by 154,000 in Michigan, right? So these, these are significant numbers when you think about how close some of these elections are. And this, this mail-in ballot stuff is only really as good as your, as good as your rolls are, right? Because you're trying to match the ballot because you don't have a live person walking in presenting an ID saying who they are to, a, you know, to a, an election official and then going in. Completing the ballot and submitting the ballot. You just have these random ballots being mailed in, you know, willy nilly dropped off at boxes, picked up and, you know, dropped in at the in the voting booths. And we don't even know if the registrations are, are accurate at this uh, at this point. And keep in so, mind
1: this whole idea of of uh,
0: being able to really
1: verify the absentee ballot signature. That's not a minor thing. And in no. the same reason why voter ID, but the left the progressives hammer and say that requiring someone to establish when they show up at the booth that they are who they claim to be is again, the famous or infamous term voter suppression is based upon the notion that progressive voters, Democrats, people who are going to vote the way they want you to vote are so incompetent so incapable that requiring voter ID is discriminatory. Now, what does that boil down to? That it's racist, that it's racist because apparently the minorities against whom racism is directed can't muster an actual government ID. And I'd like to know anyone in this society of almost any age over 16, even 15-year-olds who can get driver learning permits to drive, doesn't have a vote, doesn't have a valid ID, or can't get one. It is so preposterous, but they make that argument the cornerstone of everything else that follows. HR1 is just that argument about voter suppression, as I said earlier, on steroids.
0: Yeah, and, and, you know, as you're just describing that, their, their justification for why there's no voter ID, I mean, how is that not such a racist view that you think minorities are that incapable of being able to get an ID? I mean, I mean, talk about a, a racist view. Oh, my goodness. But, you know, I, wanted to, I want to talk about Michigan, right? Because Michigan okay. is a good, I,
1: I, I, You yes. just
0: remind me, I'm going to interrupt you again.
1: And yes. you know why they can say that, Rob? Because another expression you hear all the time from progressives, and now the Me Too movement. Lived experience. Yeah. right. Well, you haven't lived the experience, Rob. I mean, a a minority, you know, an African American, a Mexican American, uh, uh, you know, ABCDEFG person, whatever the acronym is, that um, their lived experience results in their inability to be able to either get a actual id like a driver's license or you know passport or a social security card and because you haven't lived that experience you're a bigot
0: you're part of systemic racism
1: yeah
0: you know i, I want i want to talk about michigan is because michigan and I, I know about michigan because obviously i was involved in the in the election litigation here and it's an interesting i think case study because you feel like you know in we, we talked about absentee ballots absentee ballots for the most part and for the longest time were very limited you had to have a specific reason to be able to get an absentee ballot like you were deployed for war overseas like i was during the the first gulf war and we and each unit had a voter officer who would go around and ensure that the individual who was going to be uh, doing the absentee ballot was in fact the person who was doing it we had all these signature requirements and verification requirements and then you'd submit your, your ballot in after you had made a, a written request for it and so on. So you had, all these, you had all these safeguards in place to ensure that the person who was getting the absentee ballot actually was the one who was gonna get it, right? And that you actually had skin in the game in a sense that it was, there was a process to go through it and you had to justify it. Well, one of the things that, quite frankly, I didn't realize until this litigation started, in 2018, Michigan amended its constitution it amended its constitution to permit absentee ballots for any reason whatsoever. And it was shocking. But 2018 was a very interesting year. 2018 was the same election that gave us Governor Gretchen Whitmer, who is a left-wing uh, you know, progressive. And it gave us Attorney General Dana Nessel, who is a left-wing uh, Democrat progressive. You know what else was on the ballot for that 2008, the, the midterm election? The legalization of marijuana, which had passed. The left plays a long game, right? They had something, they, they, this idea, the absentee ballot for any reason whatsoever. I mean, that just like went under the radar screen. When I tell people that they just, they can't believe it. Cause those, you know, those midterm elections, not too many people go out to them as much as, as they do for the presidential elections. And they had the mar- legalization of marijuana on the ballot, which we know, which, you know, demographic that brings and that draws out to this. And so in that same election, we got the amendment to our constitution to allow absentee ballots for any reason. We had Governor Whitmer and, and uh, Dana Nessel and the legalization of, of marijuana. But these things, they were, they were thinking about these things long, you know, well before COVID, well before, right? This, the absentee ballot issue was well before them. And it's interesting because then, and then obviously during COVID, you had these, and again, I just want to focus on Michigan here. President Trump, I think it was in, in May of 2020, he was tweeting and criticizing the Secretary of State, uh, Benson of Michigan for how she's putting in place these you know, different rules and regulations for the election that we're gonna promote fraud. And, and she responded to uh, one of them in particular, she said, quote, protecting the ability for them to sign the signature outside the ballot when they return their ballots by mail is how we will do that, meaning how they will stop the fraud. They'll make sure that the signatures are verified to ensure those signatures match their voter registration forms. And she went on to say that you know, Trump's comments about this, uh, um, uh, that this is promoting voter fraud is a red herring, a distraction. And she went on to say, you know, vote by mail is secure, it's been done securely for decades and we're focused on making sure it continues to be secure here in our state. So here she was saying, oh, no, 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 don't worry about this uh, mail-in absentee ballot. We don't have mail-in ballots per se, they're absentee ballots, which you would mail in um, because we're gonna do the, the signature verification. Well, lo and behold, just uh, a week or so ago, a Michigan judge ruled that Secretary of State Benson's broke the state law when she unilaterally issued rules related to absentee balloting, legitimizing a claim made by the Trump campaign in its challenge for the 2020 election. Well, what did she do? She issued guidance, which was against the law, that said that the signatures on these absentee ballots were going to be presumed to be valid. So rather than just the opposite, you're supposed to verify and where she was telling everybody publicly oh no no we're going to verify the signatures she issued guidance and it says nowhere in the state's election law has a legislator indicated that signatures are to be presumed valid nor did the legislature require the signatures are to be accepted so long as there are any redeeming qualities in the application or return envelope as compared with the signatures on the file so she issued guidance to all the polls that there was going to be presumption of validity on the signatures. And you had a judge here in Michigan just recently, I think it was March 9th or so that he issued this ruling and said, nope, that violated the law.
1: And let me violated just the make law. It,
0: right, let me just say this, because so, our
1: listeners aren't attorneys. So let's understand what it means to say that there's a presumption of validity. What that means is, unless you can come with what we call a prima facie case, a basic case showing that it's not legitimate it remains legitimate. So it can be fraudulent and it can, Mm. it can be, you know, on its face, kind of obviously fraudulent, but unless someone comes in some administrative or court case with actual evidence, allegations, factual allegations that this was a fraudulent signature, that signature is presumed valid as opposed to what would make sense from an absentee ballot. And the same way that we were Should require voter ID is you establish who you are, you establish Mm -hmm. that the signature is valid, not presume it valid
0: and require proof that it's not. And so in this guidance, she said, quote, slight similarities in signatures should should lead a counter to decide in favor of finding that the voters signature was valid. And what does that mean?
1: It was written written down, that's a slight similarity. In fact, that's what we see in California, right? The the entire software is based among these extremely broad parameters so that if you get one loop right or a, a dot right or a cross T, then the whole thing is considered valid. It doesn't get flagged for some untrained election official to examine if there's almost any similarity whatsoever.
0: And, and, you know, as, the, as the, the court concluded, it allowed invalid signatures to pass as valid votes. And here's another interesting statistic. In Michigan, in that election, 3.1 million Michigan voters cast absentee ballots out of a possible 7.7 million. 3.1 million. Trump lost by 154,000 votes. you telling me that there was an impropriety in this election? So you're starting to see, and, you know, this lawsuit was filed in October. Before the actual results, but the judges they don't want to jump in and and make these rules because part of the problem that they have, and it's a point that uh, Justice Thomas raised in his dissent, is you have this guidance that's being issued, and you have people who are following this guidance and who are doing so, you know, legitimately. Right? They don't have, they're not doing this based on any ill will. Or so then, what do you do? Do you have these people who are relying on this guidance to vote? You know, whether it be this guidance or you know the timing when absentee ballots have to come in, or any other host of uh, you know changes and amendments they made. What do you do with those people who relied on that value? Do they discount their votes, right? So it's it's a very it's a very tricky situation from a you know from a, an election perspective. But again, this lawsuit was filed in October prior to the the uh, the election day, and it didn't the decision didn't come down in March. And the decision was the judge said that the yeah the secretary violated the law, but hey, we're going to count those. How many of those 3.1 million votes? were likely spoiled because they didn't have a valid signature. And if you look at past you know, numbers of absentee ballots and the spoilage rate on absentee ballots is usually very, very high, and, uh, and yet only 154,000 votes, there's a problem there. You know, let's
1: come back to What was the term of Archie used for the guidance in terms of similarities?
0: Slight similarities.
1: Slight sim- So imagine if, now you yeah. have election officials and all the counties yeah right? Yeah. At, at every so he,
0: the, the upstroke on the signature looked the same as this upstroke. That's a but slight the similarity.
1: The problem. the problem is you've got all these election officials who have received this guidance and now the question becomes is how each individual election official interprets the term slight similarity. There's no mm. legal definition for that. What does that mean? No. Does it mean that, it, that they actually dot their I's or they cross their T's if if, if two signatures, which are entirely different, but at least they dotted their I's or they crossed their T um, or they wrote, you know, mostly above the line. W- what is that definition? So what you have is county by county, election official by election official, making up their own rules based upon this vague guidance. And the vague guidance was there for a reason so that the presumption would be they're valid because all these millions of absentee ballots across the country um, get approved without
0: any real review. And, and here's, we had an affidavit that we submitted on behalf of Jesse Jacob, who worked for the, uh, worked in the, for Detroit, uh, employee of the city of Detroit for decades. She was involved in the, in the, uh, in the absentee, uh, excuse me, in, in the, this uh, past election. And just in, in this affidavit, it says, um, absentee ballots that received in the mail would have the voter's signature on the envelope. While I was at the TCF Center, which is where all those and people who are listening to this podcast know the TCF Center, where there was a lot of people observed uh, a lot of uh, election uh, malfeasance taking place. Says, I was instructed not to look at any of the signatures on the absentee ballots, and I was instructed not to compare the signatures on the absentee ballot with the signature on file, among a host of other things observed by this witness, a percipient witness who, is active, who, who probably was risking it quite a bit by giving us an affidavit, somebody who actually worked for the city of Detroit. And as I said, we, you know our appendix to our, our petition to the uh, Michigan Supreme Court, we had 47 exhibits and 30 plus of them. Were affidavits similar to this uh, Jesse Jacob affidavit of uh, of witnesses who observed, meaning they were percipient witnesses, not hearsay witnesses, but people who actually observed uh, election impropriety taking place. And if you can say again, think about that three what was it, 3.1 million absentee voters, and and essentially you know you you had. Uh, People at these at these election offices saying, look, you know, slight similarities. So you're just passing through on these signatures that are likely not even valid. I mean, just common sense will tell you that there is there was a there was a lot of problems that uh, that took place during this uh, this past election. And, you know, even our AG, right, she's threatened the. Uh, to go after the, the legal licenses of people who claim that there was, you know, election malfeasance going on. Well, I'll tell you, I don't have to, I've got, I've got evidence from eyewitnesses that there were problems with this last election here in Michigan. And you know that it was, uh, it was pretty, uh, I wouldn't say necessarily widespread, but it's interesting to look at the places where most of this occurred, Pennsylvania, Michigan, right, Wisconsin, these, these states that had to be this, the swing states uh, for Biden. And yet you have all these, these problems. And again, the, the judge just ruled that secretary of state Benson broke the law. She broke the law in a way that uh, that favored the Democrats. Cause they're the ones that would, the, the Democrats would be the ones that would vote by mail or absentee far more than the Republicans were the ones who typically showed up at the poll. Look at that statistically. It's not even, you can't even compare the two. And when now, we
1: say, when we say the progressives stole the election starting, with Obama in 2016, the summer of 2016, including these election irregularities, we're not conspiratorialists. The meeting in, in with Brennan and the Obama administration after Hillary Clinton was exposed as having committed federal crimes with their server, the meeting in January 5 are facts that have been documented. Now, we don't know what everyone said precisely but you don't need to have that. I've been a commercial litigator for nearly 40 years and I deal with claims of fraud day in and day out, claims that my clients bring, that I litigate on their behalf and claims that I defend. And while it's true that you can have a lot of smoke and no fire, the fact that there's all that smoke with fires, meaning you see the smoke and you see the fire, the Russiagate, the Robert Mueller investigation, that was the fire. Fraudulently arson, you know, brought about by arson. And then you see the smoke with the meetings of the Obama administration. Now, think about all these secretaries of state, the one we mentioned in Michigan, and you have the same situation in other states, Philadelphia, Georgia, et cetera. You have election officials. Now, th- many of them, if not most of them, wanted a candidate, Biden, in the swing states. You don't have to have a conspiracy. You don't have to have people meeting in a you know, a room with cigar smoke conspiring to steal the election. All you need to have are the mechanisms in place, absentee ballots, guidances on um, uh, slight similarities and election officials who want it to go a certain way, who then tell these election officials like our affiant here that Rob mentioned, don't compare signatures don't open up that can of worms. They don't have to conspire together to come to those same kind of procedures and processes. They have the mechanisms in place. They have the same ideology and purposes and they all do more or less the same thing. Again, did we have someone in every room witnessing that? No. But when you have enough of these cases together with the acts by the Obama administration at the whole Russiagate matter, the Democrat media complex pounding that drum over and over and over again, the impeachment processes. The first impeachment was fraudulent. Um, The second impeachment, I'll leave it up to listeners to decide whether it was um, fraudulent or not. My view is it was patently fraudulent, but I'm not going to go there right now. That deserves a different podcast. But when you have that, it doesn't take much to act as it were, as if it were a conspiracy. The fraud in the 2020 election beginning in 2016 up to and including the actual election processes was so rife with fraud and de facto collusion that there's no question that the election was stolen. And that's the bottom line.
0: You know, one uh, one point of constitutional law that I want uh, people to bear in mind, and, and again, when you think about the genius of our founders, you know, there are a few exceptional cases in which the Constitution imposes a duty or confers a power on a particular branch of, uh, of a state's government. Article 2, Section 1, Clause 2 is one of them. And it provides that each state and this is the language from the, the uh, provision, each state shall appoint in such manner as the legislature thereof may direct electors for the president and vice president. So what does that mean? And what has the case law interpreted that to mean? Which is, you know, when you look at this, what happened in Michigan and Pennsylvania and these other states is that it is the legislature that decides what the rules are for the elections, not the state Supreme Court. So when the, when the Pennsylvania Supreme Court um, ruled contrary to what the what the law was in terms of when absentee ballots could be um, could be considered because they found a provision in the Pennsylvania you know constitution that uh, that apparently granted you know greater authority than what the legislature could provide. That you can't do that under the Constitution. It's the legislature that the wants. Nor can Secretary Benson. That was the whole point of what the when the judge said. You know, she violated the Administrative Procedures Act. Effectively, she wanted to change the legislation by her own executive fiat, and she can't do that. Governors can't do it. this, the, the, the uh, Supreme Courts of the states can't do it. The legislatures have plenary authority over how the elections are going to be run, particularly for the uh, for the president and the uh, and the vice president. And and that's that's ingrained in the uh, in the case law. I want to I want to just turn uh, quickly because it's related to this. Um, I mentioned uh, Justice Thomas's dissent and from the election cases, and there's a, a couple of points that he makes that I, I want to draw out. That's very good. And if you, if people and you can you can Google it and find it online. It's you know Republican Party of Pennsylvania versus the Acting Secretary of Pennsylvania and Jake Corman versus Pennsylvania Democratic party they were these two cases were consolidated yeah why don't we put why don't we put the
1: case on our website next you know with the podcast
0: yeah i can uh, i don't know if i can link it to the podcast but i can find a split a place to uh to, to put it up somewhere um, that would be you know,
1: americanfreedomlawcenter.org or yes. aflc.us
0: either one will take you there and, and given the, the constitutional point I mentioned, this is how he starts out his dissent. The Constitution gives to each state legislature authority to determine the manner of federal elections. Yet both before and after the 2020 election, non-legislative officials in various states took it upon themselves to set the rules instead. Point being, you can't do that. The, con- the U.S. Constitution doesn't allow them to do that. There's a couple, I mean, there's so much in this, this dissent that is so good. But one of the things that he points out um, we were talking about the mail-in ballots. This, this is just statistically he put this out. In Pennsylvania, for example, mail-in ballots composed just 4% of the ballots in 2018. But in 2019, excuse me, and then there was they made some changes in 2019, but the percentage of mail-in ballots for the 2020 election was 38%. Again, bear, from 4% to 38%. Bear in mind that we have a long history of of plain evidence and commissions, and everything that mail-in ballots and absentee ballots are fraught with fraud. They allow for fraud and makes it very hard to detect. So you had went from four percent Pennsylvania to thirty eight percent. This was an I thought was interesting. He quotes um, an article that was written in New York Times, co-authored by the uh, the now dean of the Yale Law School, and and this is what she explained in the uh, in the Times article that absentee ballot voting allows for simpler and more effective alternatives to commit fraud on a larger scale, such as stealing absentee ballots or stuffing a ballot box, which explains why all the evidence of stolen elections involves absentee ballots and the like. Goes on to say, voting by mail is now common enough and problematic enough that election experts say there have been multiple elections in which no one can say with confidence which candidate was the deserved winner. That's frightening, right? That's when you, when you think about that, that is frightening. And let's so then let's roll into what HR1 does, right? And that's there's so much more here, even in this, uh, in this Thomas and this Thomas uh, d- uh, dissent that it's just, you know, it's, it's beautiful. And he makes the point like, why are we waiting to decide these things uh, when they need to be decided right now? But and HR just
1: you know Rob is a, a kind of a high altitude HR one. And then let's dedicate a podcast even next week to really drilling down on that.
0: Yeah. Well, HR one, as I mentioned at the, the top and, and there's, you know, one of the best articles that I found uh, discussing it is, uh, was. Um, by the editors of the of the National Review, it started Mar- dated March eighth, twenty twenty one, and uh, the title should tell you <laughs> all that you probably need to know. H R one is a partisan assault on American democracy, and this is, they said, it would be an understatement to d- describe H R one as a radical assault on American democracy, federalism, and free speech. It is actually several radical left wing wish lists stuffed into a single seven hundred ninety one page sausage casing. What it essentially does—it does, as a matter of federal law—remove virtually all the provisions that are in place by state law to ensure that we have legal votes counted and illegal votes not counted. Here's my goodness. There's so many things to uh, to address this. This is what it says. The first target is to wipe out state laws that allow voters to be checked against a pre-existing list of registrations. HR1 mandates that states provide that states provide same-day registration and allow people to change their name and address on the rolls at the polling place on election day and then it forbids states from treating their votes as provisional ballots that can be checked later it mandates online registration without adequate safeguards against hackers It mandates let me me say this beyond that
1: it requires that any state or federal interface with any kind of government agency um, automatically gets you registered. Yes. And you have to be the one to say, no, I don't want to be registered. The default is any interface, whether it's a driver's license or, you know, anything, you're automatically registered.
0: And as they, you know, they point out here, the bill's authors expect This to register non-citizens. They create a safe harbor against prosecution of non-citizens who report that they've been erroneously registered. So think about that and put that in context of what we're witnessing down in the southern border with all these, you know, illegals coming across the uh, coming across the border. You don't think their names are going to show up on on registration rolls somewhere along the lines? You can't even
1: check them, right? But the silliness is that an illegal alien who's, you know probably using an illegal social security number to work right yeah um a stolen id as it were that they're going to somehow go to the government and say oh gee you made a mistake and registered me to vote but i'm actually an illegal immigrant i'm an undocumented worker as it were i mean that's silly but they do that again to
0: protect them so that they can't be touched Yep. this uh this new law would bar states from checking with other states with duplicate registrations within six months of an election. <laughs> I mean, just think about that. You can't, you can't even, you can't even compare your voter rolls with the other ones. See if there's, you know, this person who has a home in Florida and Michigan or wherever that they're registered to vote in each one of those States. Yep. Um, it bars removing former voters from the rolls for failure to vote or to respond to mailings. Right. So even if they want to go out and check, see if somebody's still active and alive on the voter rolls, you can't do anything about it. Uh, outside election observers, which are an important you know, check on the system, this, this legislation would bar anyone but an election official from challenging a voter's eligibility to vote on election day. So then you have insulated now Democrat-run precincts from any scrutiny because you don't have these outside observers. They all have to be people who are, who are you know, internal. State voter ID laws are banned, replaced simply by a sworn voter statement. The dramatic expansion of mail-in voting during COVID will be enshrined permanently in this federal law. So all this absentee mail-in voting and everything will become a matter of of state law. States are banned from the most elementary security methods for mail-in ballots. They must provide a ballot to everyone without asking for identification and may not require notarization or witnesses to signatures. What do you say about, I mean, my goodness, you want, this is just absolutely undermining. If we don't have confidence in our elections now, H.R. 1 passes the Senate, forget it. Where's where's the confidence in the elections? And if you want to use the term that they've coined,
1: voter suppression, then what you can certainly argue is that this is a massive voter suppression against anyone who doesn't vote Democrat.
0: (laughs) It's it's going to... It is going to dilute votes of those who are voting for the Republican Party. You know it will. It's just because that's just the way this is set up. It's designed to be this way. And yet, and states are compelled to permit ballot harvesting, so long as the harvesters are not paid per ballot. So you can do curbside voting, ballot drop-off bo- uh, boxes. 15 days of early voting are mandated. I mean, it's just, it's, inc- it's just you're going to have a flood of these absentee ballots, which nobody can validate. They're just going to show up and they're going to have to count
1: them. In L.A., there's so many homeless. In fact, in all of California, there's so many homeless that all you'd have to do is walk around and harvest their absentee ballots, get them to, you know, put their X down or sign their name for them. Who who cares? Just, you know, put a name down um, and get them registered the same day. Um, And you'll win every election. There's so many homeless here. I mean, it's just an absurdity.
0: Yeah, And, the, you know, also states are compelled to accept voter registrations from 16-year-olds, although they can't vote until they're 18. But the point being is that, you know, the, the Democrats spend a lot of money, right, on trying to get the young people to, uh, you know, to register and get them. So what they're essentially doing is, yeah, look, we'll save, we'll save our money that we have to spend to do these get out the vote campaigns. And we'll just make it a matter of federal law that we'll get these, these young people, you know, on the, uh, on the registration rolls. And uh, we'll do that by using the, uh, the federal government uh, to do that. There's and, also and before, we end, before
1: we end, I just want to say, obviously, I was joking, while there are a lot of homeless people in California, um, it would take more than just the homeless. But um, if you're allowed to, to ballot harvest without any of the other protections, uh, anyone who gets organized um, can simply uh, defeat and suppress every legitimate vote that's ever, pa- ever made by people who actually care and show up at the ballots.
0: Yeah. So at, at the end of the day, and there's one more, one more main point, then I'll wrap up on HR1 and we probably should wrap up here. I know we've been, yeah. we've been going pretty long, but this is an HR1 could be a whole nother uh, issue to bring up. Hopefully the Senate will, will shut it down and it, they, you know, they'll get rid of it through the filibuster or, or however they need to do it. But 501C4s, right, which are different than C3s, um, they, they do more lobby work and, and that type of thing. But this is going to require them to disclose the names of donors. Right. Whenever you say, Oh, we want to disclose donors. You know why we, we know this from, you know, our 501 C3. They're always, Oh, they want to, they want to attack mercilessly. Anybody who would contribute, you know, to, to the organizations, they, the left, the left will go out on attack and they will dox all these donors. I mean, it's just a way to suppress people from wanting to donate to those 501 C4s. And, and let's
1: explain again, IRS, um, Uh, code, the Internal Revenue Tax Code, has a provision that's labeled 501c3, and that authorizes uh, not-for-profit charitable organizations to um, file a special tax return and not be taxed, a charitable organization provision. A 501c4 organization under the Tax Act is for these organizations that lobby and so forth, and um, uh, their efforts to prevent charities like us and C4s from getting donations from people who want to do so anonymously, because if you're found to be donating to a conservative and especially a Judeo-Christian conservative organization, the cancel culture of today, which began under the Obama administration with the IRS itself, Mm -hmm. trying to literally um deny proper 501c3 status to legitimate organizations that that's in full swing and if you can find out who a wealthy donor is who doesn't want his business or his reputation smeared by the left as a bigot etc but wants to donate to a legitimate judeo-christian organization like ours or a Christian organization fighting for pro life, um, if you force them to disclose all of their donors, um, these people will stop donating because they're not going to be subject to that kind of social media smear.
0: Right. And, and the left knows it, right? They're, they're masses of it. They're the ones that always like to attach labels right. and attack people and, and, uh, and shut them down. You know, this is this is the last line from this uh, this National Review article, and I think it, it nails it. It says HR one is not merely a bad idea; it is a scandal, and that's and that's where we are. And hopefully, this uh, you know the Senate will uh, will block that, and and uh, you know it won't become law. If it does, we well, got I, a lot will, of work.
1: I will end on this.
0: Yeah. It is a
1: scandal, but in reality, it's not a greater scandal than what took place with these absentee ballots and so forth during the actual election. It is much less of a scandal that took place with the Obama administration and then continuing through the Trump administration with Russiagate, this whole effort to undermine the candidacy of President Trump and then to undermine his entire administration. In my view, literally treasonous acts. Those scandals, one on top of another simply remind us that these people, the progressives, they play for keeps. We are in a non-kinetic civil war and they intend to win. And if those of us on the other side of the line don't understand that,
0: we lose. No. If you don't know the enemy, you lose. Right, famous famous line from Sun Tzu, right? Well, let's uh, let's wrap that up. I want to thank you, uh, thank everyone for joining us. And, and I, I'd like to make a note that you can you can find our video casts on our Rumble and YouTube channels, and you can find our podcasts on Sp- on Spotify and Stitcher. It's it's uh, both the channels and the podcasts of Faith and Freedom Fighters. And if you like the content, would ask you to uh, please follow us. And thank you all again for uh, for joining us and listening in on our on our discussion. Hope you found it um, edifying, and uh, we uh, again we, we God you know bless you, and we ask that He continue to bless America. Amen.